Well, we're in Exodus 2 this morning, Exodus 2, if you have your Bible with you. If you don't, there's one in one of the chairs underneath you. And we pick up this week in chapter 2 of the book of Exodus where we left off last week at the end of chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'll just give a little recap. In chapter 1, we were oriented to the setting of the story. Hundreds of years have passed since the time of Joseph when Jacob and his family of 70, uh, those 70 individuals fled into Egypt to avoid a severe famine in the land. And during those several hundred years of which, remember, God foretold to Abraham, even hundreds of years before that, that his descendants would go and sojourn in a strange land and that they would be there and that they would be oppressed for those 400 years, but that afterward God would grow them and he would deliver them and he would judge that nation that oppressed them and they would come out with many possessions during those years of which God foretold to Abraham and of which was between the Genesis story and the Exodus story. During those years, we saw God's people grew in number. However, and this was something we discussed last week, their tremendous growth happened not as a result of perfect circumstances. It's not like we could say, well, of course they would grow. Look at these situations. No, it was really a divine miracle. The fact is God grew his people just as he promised he would do when he made those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he did all of that despite their circumstances and in many way or ways in conjunction with those horrible circumstances, which should make those of us who know Christ to rejoice because we know that by faith, when we experience godly trials, godly growth is a result of them, as James 1 reminds us of. Again, we saw that in Exodus chapter 1. But not all, as we saw, were happy to see this growth that took place in the nation of Israel. In fact, the leading antagonist in the story, he was beside himself. He was frustrated and even scared at their growth. He knew the ancient promises given to the Israelites, that their God would multiply their numbers and take them out of Egypt <clears throat> in order to give them a kingdom of their own, and he wasn't having it. And so we saw that he took matters into his own hands, started with persecution. That didn't work. They grew even more. Then it moved to him trying to murder or really have the Israelites murder their own children, their firstborn sons of Israel. But by God's grace, that didn't work because there were two courageous women who avoided that act. And then he just went off and went into total genocide, calling upon his own people to murder the firstborn sons of Israel, which is an interesting thing to mention. I didn't have time to mention it last week, but what started in this one individual, this insecure fear, this sinful impulse, and this evil and wicked man, eventually it spread out to all of his people, and what ended up happening is it rendered all of them guilty before God of this horrible crime against humanity and against God's people. And that is where we ended chapter one. So we've been sitting on pins and needles all week wondering, God, what are you going to do about this. And thankfully, we have the beginning of the answer in chapter two. The title, if you're taking notes for the sermon this week, is The God Who Knows. The God Who Knows. And I, I guess if I was to sum, summarize the point I want to convince you of this morning, it's this 
that God knows you. And because he knows you, he hears your prayers and he sees your pain and he remembers his promises to you. We're going to see that this morning. So we're just going to read this chapter is in three parts. So we're going to read the parts so that we're not bogged down in the whole thing together. So we're just going to read the first 10 verses together in a section I'm calling the birth of a savior. <clears throat> now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. There is obviously so much joy whenever a child is born into the world, and that certainly would have been the case with the birth of this child, who would eventually be called Moses by his adopted mother. But along with that joy, in that moment, was certainly this incredible fear and sorrow. Why? Because this child was born under an edict of death. Because, as we saw last week, the Pharaoh's genocidal plan involved the slaughter of every male child born of the Hebrews at the hands of the Egyptians. And so this mother and father knew this child, though born into this world, was destined for destruction. Which leaves us to wonder, why even bring a child into a world like that? And many parents today have thought that same question. Why bring a child into such a horrible world as the one we are living in today? And the answer is simple, because those parents then lived and walked by faith. That's the answer, because at least that was the conclusion that the author of Hebrews gives in his famous Hall of Faith section in chapter 11. Listen to what he says in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, these parents brought this child into that world under a shroud of death. It was their faith that enabled them to continue on with their lives despite such horrible circumstances. They got married, they started a family, and when their first child was born, they hid him because their faith 
because of their faith, they weren't afraid of what the world may do to them and by extension, what the world may do to their children. They were not afraid. Maybe a question for us is, do you have that kind of faith? Well, if you're impressed with that, it gets even better. Because after a while, their step of faith became increasingly difficult to hide. And one day, she could hide her son no longer. And with even more faith than it took to bring that child into the world, she did the only thing she knew to do when he was three months old. She entrusted her son and his life into the hands of God. And how does she do it? Well, he describes it. She starts by constructing a basket. In the original language, it's the same word that is used to describe Noah's ark. So she creates an ark for her son, and she sends him into the Nile River, ultimately carrying her son to his destiny. Whatever God would have for my son, it is in his hands now, not in mine. Whatever would become of him. But at least in this vessel... He may have a chance to survive those crocodile-infested waters of the Nile, those perilous waters by which all of the other children were thrown into and murdered by the Egyptians. Now, as readers of the story, hopefully we would look at that and and see the language and the connections and say, I know what's going to happen. Just as God delivered Noah in that flood, and he floated upon the waters, and God saved him even in the midst of that, those judgment waters. God is going to save the child. I, I already know the story. I know where this is going, right? You know those kind of people when you're watching movies with them? They've already anticipated what's going to happen. And uh, I'm watching the new Lord of the Rings uh, series on, on Amazon, and I find myself doing that already. I know where I'm looking. That's what we're doing in this story. I know what God is going to do, but God does it. He does it actually in a rather ironic and comedic way. You see the child, he floats down the river and he just so happens to end up at the feet of the daughter of the Pharaoh himself, that same Pharaoh who ordered the genocide in the first place. And how does he describe the encounter? She looks on him with pity, with compassion. But it says she recognizes this is a Hebrew child. Which means that as an Egyptian woman, she also was under the same orders to kill this Hebrew boy. What she was supposed to do was take him and throw him in the Nile. But what happens instead? She saves his life. More than that, she adopts him, brings him into her own house, which suggests to us, the reader, maybe not all the Egyptians complied with that order. Perhaps some even believed in the God of the Hebrews. Perhaps this woman even believed to some degree. And so the irony is apparent. The same Pharaoh who ordered the killings is now housing the one who will eventually fulfill his greatest fear, the exodus of God's people from Egypt. But the irony, again, it ramps up even more because not only is he adopted by the princess, but he's weaned by his very own mother, who gets paid to do it from the Pharaoh's allowance because his sister, his older sister, had her wits about her in the moment, and she offers up the child's mother to care for this son, uh, for Pharaoh's daughter. And the point is clear. God rewarded this woman's faith. That's the point. She accepted 
that she could lose her son when she sent him down the river. She said, God, he's out of my hands. And, and friends, every parent has that open-handed idea with their children. But in giving her son to God, she not only saved her son, but was rewarded herself for her faith by getting her son back, getting wages to care for him, and by extension, she saved all of Israel later on. And she did all this by faith. Now, in the moment, we look at that and say, that is insane what she did. And it was. But by faith, she saw something even greater. And no doubt in those early years, this mom did all that she could to teach her son Moses about their people and where he came from. So that when he came into Egypt, that love, that training by his biological mother would make him into the man he needed to be. And I think these are good reminders for parents, but it's even a great reminder that God rewards faith and that his plans to raise up a savior cannot be undone. In fact, there are so many similarities, hopefully <coughs> you've seen them, between Moses' birth and the birth of Jesus, the savior of God's people. Moses is a savior, one of many, but Jesus was the savior of God's people. He too was born under an edict of death. Remember when King Herod ordered the slaughter of all of the firstborn children or sons of Israel as well. He too fled into Egypt with his parents and he too was born to parents filled with faith. And after such dark injustice in chapter 1, thankfully we see this glimmer of light that God is still working behind the scenes in the early part of chapter 2 saving this child's life, rewarding faith of his people, raising up a savior, a baby born by faith, saved by faith, and then raised by faith. Things seem to be going in the right direction, but there's more to the story. So let's continue to read the second section, 11 to 22, in a, a section I'm calling, Not Yet a Savior. So the birth of a savior, not yet a savior. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah 
She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. We'll stop there. As you can see, the story jumps ahead uh, from Moses, the boy who lived, Harry Potter reference, to Moses, the grown man. And we aren't told anything about those years in between, uh, but there are some things that we can assume happened in those years between Moses, the boy who lived, and Moses, the grown man. We can assume he was given the best education, ate the best food, wore the expensive clothes, and attended the best social gatherings. Moses was living it up in Egypt. In fact, Stephen, in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 7, makes this remark about those early years. He said, and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. As a parent, you think, what more could you want for your child in this life? A comfortable life, a good education, opportunity, safety, security. That's what Moses had, especially given what his life could have been like, either dead or a slave in Egypt. Certainly his parents must have been stoked, and he for sure was happy. There was only one problem. God had greater plans for Moses. For that matter, his parents had greater, higher goals for their son than the palaces of Egypt. Can you imagine having higher goals than that? And as a result of their faith and their prayers and their example to Moses at a young age, Moses came to have higher goals for himself than the palaces of Egypt. And again, we're given insight into the heart and mind of Moses in those years in Hebrews 11 that led him to do the things that we just read about in that section in Exodus 2. This is what it says in Hebrews 11, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, in, in no way does the author of Hebrews, is he suggesting that by faith Moses murdered somebody. That's not what he's saying. He's not condoning what God condemns. But what he is saying is that Moses, at some point in his life, around 40 years old, came to the point of making a choice. Am I going to blend in with the world? Or am I going to identify with my people, with God's people and walk by faith in the promises of God that he made to his people, which those promises are far better, but the life that I'm going to live in this life now is way worse than the life I'm going to live over here in Egypt. That was the question that was haunting Moses' heart. Now, fools may think, well, wouldn't it have been better? I mean, isn't there a third option? This third option will couldn't Moses have stayed like both a Hebrew, maybe like a delegate in the house of Pharaoh and been like, I, I want to be identified with them, but I also kind of want to have a seat at the table and maybe, I, maybe we can find a diplomatic solution for this. Maybe we can play politics. But the answer is no, because Moses knew that though he may look like an Egyptian, in his heart, he will always be one of God's people. 
And it was only a matter of time before they treated him the same way he treated them. It was only a matter of time. A fool thinks they can have Christ in their hearts and fit in with the world. But those two things cannot fit together. As John said in 1 John, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. And in this moment, Moses made the better choice. Not the better choice for the moment, but in the moment made the better choice for now and for the future. He chose rather to forsake the pleasures, the passing pleasures of this life, this life of luxury and safety and exchanged it for a life of poverty and hardship. Why? Because through faith he saw a greater kingdom that was coming, a greater reward, one that would make all the pleasures of this world seem like trash. Of course, though the author of Hebrews praises his faith, we must also acknowledge Moses ain't the savior yet. Because, well, obviously in the story, Moses is kind of brash. He kind of takes matters into his own hands. And, and though he was going to be the savior, he was not the kind of savior that God was raising up. You see, Moses, he did have a few things going for him. Look at what he says. He identifies with his people. We see that in verse 11, uh, that he had compassion for them. He went out to be among them and look at their plight and their burdens. Uh, and he, because of that, desired to be their liberator. So he had the desire there. He had the identification there. But there was one big problem. Again, he was going about it all on his own, all in his own strength. He was trying to take on the kingdom of Egypt all on his own, apart from God. You see, yes, God would call him to save his people, but God had not called him yet. So he was trying to do all this ministry in his own strength, and that doesn't work. And, and we'll see this come up later on in Moses' life, but he had a little bit of an anger problem. He had a problem of taking matters and things into his own hands, and that's what we see happening here. Moses thought he could single-handedly deliver his people from Egypt one by one. And, and though, again, Moses had the right motivation, his methods were ungodly. And he murdered an Egyptian, and when he did, he lost the trust and respect of his own people, the people he sought to lead. So in many ways, they rejected their savior. The Hebrews did. And he fled in fear, something that would come up later on with Jesus, right? His own people received him not. But he ends up in Midian, which ironically was a distant relative of the Israelites. And it seemed as if Moses learned at least a little bit uh, of his lesson because when he meets these defenseless women... He doesn't do what he did before. He doesn't kill these shepherds. He just scares them off. And even greater, what do we see him doing? He serves these women by watering their flocks, something that they report back to their father. Now remember, the Egyptians saw both Hebrews and shepherds as an abomination. They did not go around them. And they certainly would not have served in some low position like this. So evidently Moses was becoming a changed man. And again, all of this is pointing us to see that Moses is God's man, but he isn't there yet. Meaning before God can work through him, he must first do a work in him. Nevertheless, here is a man who went from certain death to the great halls of Egypt to now a sojourner, a nameless individual 
in the wilderness, a rags to riches to rags story. But this story, in many ways, it points to the pattern and lifestyle of the Christian life and how at times we're also going to have to make choices in faith between the comforts of this world and the promises of the next. But this story also points us to the one who made the ultimate riches to rags journey. You see, when Jesus came to us, he did not come to us from the palaces of Egypt, but from the halls of heaven. And when Jesus came like Moses did, he came to this world and he went out among his people and looked upon their burdens. But unlike Moses, Jesus didn't take up the sword when he came into this world or ascend to some high political office in order to liberate his people from their oppressors. No, instead, Jesus suffered alongside his people and ultimately suffered for his people when he gave his life as a sacrifice for sins. It took exile for Moses to learn to serve people. But Jesus already knew how to do that, and he exiled himself into this world to serve you and me, and ultimately by going to the cross. So Moses would eventually be the Savior God uses for his people in that day, but God, generations later, sent an even greater Savior in the person of his Son, so that all who identify with him may be saved. Which brings us to the final section of the chapter, verse, just the few verses there, verse 23 to 25, in a section I'm calling God is Savior. God is Savior. We'll read it together. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And notice the verbs in this next section. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I'm reading out of the ESV. Moses spent 40 years in the palaces of Egypt learning the wisdom of of the Egyptians, learning the wisdom of this world. He would spend the next 40 years in the wilderness learning the wisdom of God. And that's what he's saying there. During those many days, during those 40 years when Moses would learn the wisdom of God in the backside of a wilderness, and in those 40 years, God's people in Egypt continued to suffer. And the great king of Egypt, the one who had All those fears and all those anxieties about God's people leaving and killed all those young boys. Well, guess what? He eventually suffered the same fate, and he too died. Turns out even those in power eventually have to give it up. But while God's people suffered, they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and God heard those prayers. They came up to him, and just as Moses went out to see his people and their burdens and was moved with compassion for them and tried to bring justice in his own hands. God, the only righteous judge, when he heard their prayers, he saw and he heard what was going on with his people. And then it says, and he remembered. Which is not to say that God forgot. It's not like he was having a senior moment for a long time and everybody was suffering as a result of his senior moment. It's not that. It's just simply to say that he recalled his promises. 
perhaps the one from Genesis 15, when God told Abraham that his people would suffer for 400 years in a foreign land and that he would judge that nation and deliver them out of Egypt with a great many possessions. Maybe he was recalling that promise, that specific promise to Abraham. He heard, he remembered, but the greatest of all is that fourth verb when it says, and he knew, and he knew, which has sort of boggled the minds of people. What does that mean, God knew? What did he know? Well, fill in the blank. He knew the sufferings of his people, and he knew the time had come to make good on his promises to them and answer their prayers. This is some good news for us from this story, that God knows you. He knows your fears. He knows your struggles with sin, your hurts, your pains. He knows. And the good news is, is that he has chosen to love you despite all of that infinite knowledge about you. Isn't that a little crazy? Imagine if someone knew everything about you, not just the good things, but those things that you don't want anyone knowing about. God knows all of those things, and he still remembers, sees, calls, loves. One of the wonderful things about God is that he remembers his covenant promises to his people, but he chooses to forget all of our sins. Now, the enemy is going to want to convince you of the opposite of that. The enemy wants to convince you that God remembers all of your sins and forgets all of his promises to you. That's what the enemy wants to remind you of, and that's what our flesh wants to remind us of, but that isn't true. If you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are one of his children, he remembers your sin no more, and instead he remembers his promises to you, though he knows you. He knows how to comfort you and how to fix all the broken parts of you. God knows. Now again, the simple statement that God knows, that's good news. It's good news depending on your relationship with God, right? If he knows you and you know him, then this is good news. It's a great comfort for his children. But at the same time, it can also be a frightening piece of information to know that God knows. It's kind of like when you did something wrong and, and your sibling comes up to you and says, hey, mom and dad know. They know what, what you did. It's like that scary movie that came out a few years ago, I Know What You Did Last Summer. That's, that's not a rom-com. That is a horror film, right? And it reminds, when God knows, when God knows, and you're not in Christ, and you're not under his covenant blessing, and in fact, you're working against him, God knows. And, and it's kind of like he's saying to the Egyptians here, I know what you did last summer to my people. And the summer before that, and the summer before that. Which reminds me of the name of God that he proclaims to Moses in Exodus 34. Just listen to what, how God describes himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so in closing, as I said in the beginning, my hope is that you would walk away convinced that God knows you. And because he knows you, he hears your prayers, he sees your pain, and he remembers his promises to you. Let's pray together, and then we'll have a time of 
communion. God, we come before you and and the fact that we can come before you and pray, Lord, in many ways our hearts are not in total alignment because we there's no way we could understand what these Hebrew people were going through at that time, but we understand to some degree what it feels like to be out of control and to have the whole world, it feels like, coming in down on us. And then all we can do is pray. Really, at the end of the day, all we should do is pray because we know that you hear us. You see our situation. You remember your covenant promises to your people and you know us and you know everything going on. You know the words that We speak, you know them before they even come out of our mouths. You can answer our prayers before we even pray them. And so, God, we're thankful that you are a God who knows, a God who sees, a God who cares, and more than that, a God who has the ability, the power to actually change our situation. And so, God, I pray that, uh, Lord, anyone in, in that sort of moment in their life right now, God, that you would... Uh, minister your grace to them, that you would remind them how much you know and care about them, God. And, and just as you were planning with the people here, that you would make plans of deliverance for them as well. But God, we just thank you for your word and for your love and affection toward us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.